You're listening to Socialist News and Views with your host, Nick Schillingford. I'm Nick Schillingford, again, coming to you here from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis. In the second half of the show, we'll talk to a few connections that I made uh, in regards to the topic of gun rights and gun culture in the United States. Uh, But first, we start with the news. An article by Socialist Alternative Minnesota on May 12th is entitled... Aftermath of George Floyd Rebellion Shapes Minneapolis 2021 Elections. The article says that BLM protests in 2020 deserve full credit for the conviction of police officer Derek Chauvin by, quote, taking to the streets, end quote, and forcing police to turn on their own to distance department policy from Chauvin's actions. The article goes on to say that much of the rage and anger of the past summer was allowed to be channeled into the Democratic Party instead of being fully harnessed by the movements within the neighborhoods. But it says, quote, the battle is not over, end quote. It highlights the Yes for Minneapolis campaign for a charter amendment being pushed forward by radical youth. This, it says, quote, seeks to remove the Minneapolis Police Department from the city charter and instead name it a Department of Public Safety. It says that the campaign has recently turned 20,000 signatures over to the city, which will likely qualify it for the November 2021 ballot. The article also outlines another petition that has emerged calling for, quote, community control of the police. This approach would establish a civilian police accountability commission. The article says both of these ballot initiatives fall short, and there is a clear weakness to the commission proposal because it does not, quote, link to demands that the movement can fight for now, end quote. The article also outlines a campaign around rent control and endorses Robin Wonsley Warblaw, who is running in War II against Cam Gordon. You can read more at socialistalternative.org and also listen to our special interview here on Socialist News and Views with Robin for Minneapolis on one of our special news segments. Again, check it out on SoundCloud on our page for Socialist News and Views. Looking at the international situation, Saul Kanowitz has an article on Liberation News entitled Tear Gas, Bullets, Bombs, Israel Unleashes Massive Assault on Palestinians. It says that in response to the mobilization of thousands and thousands of Palestinians defending their right to live in Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in East Jerusalem, Israel has, quote, unleashed murderous actions all across occupied Palestine, end quote. The article says Hamas has issued an ultimatum to Israel to stop the assault and eviction campaign, and Hamas has launched dozens of rockets into Jerusalem after continued attacks on Palestinians. 
This is all a part of an increasing campaign by Israel, says the May 10th article, to remove Palestinians from Palestine. The article goes on to say that this is all part of an ongoing struggle by Palestinians against colonial displacement, saying, quote, The Palestinian people have not gone away nor forgotten their history. They are an example of what a determined people can do in the face of seemingly overwhelming odds. As this new round of deadly Israeli attacks unfold, it is more important than ever that major pressure be applied to demand that the U.S. government stop arming Israel with billions of dollars of weapons every year and providing diplomatic cover for their crimes. An article by staff of Fight Back News on May 11th documents a large protest against Israeli attacks on Palestinians that took place in San Jose, California. The article states, quote, The crowd had a high concentration of Arabs, mothers and children, and a majority of the crowd was under the age of 35, end quote. In total, around 400 people attended it, says. The article says, This solidarity is a good development and includes the names of a number of organizations that participated, including Palestinian Youth Movement, Black Outreach, the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, and the American Muslims for Palestine. Truthout has an interview with Noam Chomsky May 12th where he says that the recent historical framework has seen an Israel that was and is, quote, free to pursue the policies that persist today, always with massive U.S. support despite occasional clucks of discontent, end quote. Chomsky goes on, quote, the Israeli government's immediate policy goal is to construct a greater Israel, including a vastly expanded Jerusalem encompassing surrounding Arab villages, the Jordan Valley, a large part of the West Bank, end quote. As well, Chomsky highlights how the ongoing support of Israeli imperialism is part of the U.S.'s own imperialist project and continued violation of international law, also done with internationally prohibited unilateral violence. Colombia, Al Jazeera has an article May 12th. The article, which is titled Colombia Enters Third Week of Anti-Government Protests, says, quote, protesters are calling for an end to police violence and more economic support during the pandemic among a long list of demands, end quote. It says that the protests have included union members, pensioners, and students, as well as many other elements of society. It states that protests originally erupted in response to a government tax plan, which has now been withdrawn. The article states that as many as 40 people have been killed during the protests, but says human rights groups who blame the police for the deaths, believe the numbers could be much higher. It says protesters have expressed skepticism that the government will stop the massacres and yet has kept up the demonstrations and roadblocks. It says that a lot of the recent anger is a result of inequalities laid bare by COVID. But according to the director for the Andes at Washington office on Latin America, Jimena Sanchez, quote, the Colombian protests are not just about COVID. They are about anger towards Duque, for police repression from 2019 onwards, not advancing the 2016 peace accord, rising massacres and killings of social leaders, and the perception by middle and working class Colombians that the government is only interested in advancing the economic and political elite's agendas, end quote. May 12th on Counterpunch, the article titled, Colombia's Leaders Want to Stain Their Country with the Blood of the Working Class by Laura Capote and Zoe Alexandra says mainstream media in South America have been, quote, selectively silent, end quote, about the violent crimes taking place by the government. Bodie and Alexandra 
go on to quote two separate human rights groups that say, quote, the violent actions of the state security forces resulted in the death of at least 47 people. The arbitrary detention of 963 people, 28 victims of eye-related injuries, and 12 victims of sexual violence. In total, they registered 1,876 cases of police violence, end quote. While the UN Human Rights Office did issue a, quote, strong statement, this did not deter the Colombian government and both national and local authorities have, quote, intensified repression, end quote. Any opposition movement, it says, is dealt with by the government as, quote, an object of war, which must be dealt with either by the state's own repressive apparatus or by paramilitary forces, end quote. International solidarity with the working class of Colombia has also taken place in the U.S. with a rally in Milwaukee covered by Fight Back News in an article May 10th, which it says brought out 40 people to the streets, and an article from MainBeacon.com says a rally also took place in Portland, Maine over the weekend with about 40 people as well. Now we go to a musical break. We will be hearing the song Joe Hill by the great Paul Robeson. When we come back, we will be speaking to a few connections that I made through Facebook uh, about the issues of gun culture and gun violence, gun rights, etc. in the United States. Hearing three viewpoints on that issue, we'll be back after this musical break. Alive as you and me, says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I, am standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe. I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper pulses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't. And standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes, says Joe what they can never kill, went on to organize, went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where working men defend their rights, it's there. Find Joe Hill. It's there you'll find Joe Hill. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he.
And that was Joe Hill from Paul Robeson. And now we go to three perspectives from some connections that I made as it relates to gun culture, gun rights in the United States. I had a specific statement that I put out there that folks connected with me on. I'll read that statement briefly now, and then we'll go to the responses. I said, does anyone have thoughts on American gun culture? Should activists in the left movements in the United States embrace parts or all of this culture, reject it completely, take a different position, or not take a position at all? Why? What are the strongest arguments one way or another? We did hear back from three folks and wanted to share those perspectives with you now. So we now go to some commentaries on gun culture and gun rights in the United States. My name is um, Sean Tarver. Um, I live in Texas. Well, I'm, I'm also from Texas. Um, I am a member of Socialist Alternative. I'm also a member of Sinai, which is the Spanish uh, black, um, I guess, black African group that assists with them. Um, not just migrants of African descent, but Spanish citizens and residents of African descent and to bring more issues and more topics to that in Spain um, and so on. Um, I think, like I've said earlier, and uh, like I said to many people, um, this is a complex issue. Um, it's complex in a sense that if you think of the things that people have tried to do in schools and things that people have tried to do like in general, they can either become discriminatory or they can be seen as racist um, in a sense. So when you put metal detectors up at a school um, and they don't go to every school, or when you put, or when you say teachers should carry guns in school, when that really isn't the case, it's not gonna help at all. Um, and so it, it's, it's a sense of that, it's not just that banning a gun or banning certain types of guns is going to help. It's also a sense that it's the whole idea that American culture is built not off of that, off of such a idea of ethnicity. It's built more around ideals. Those ideals being what makes you American, what is American, and this is like something that I thought about recently. Um, it to be American, you basically just have to deny a lot of things about yourself, which is cultural background, cultural history, um, and in things of that nature, things that like that make you you that make you kind of individual but also make you part of a collective but that collective is not 100% entrenched or assimilated to um American culture um and I think those are important factors that we have to consider when when we deal with um things like gun control when we deal with things of that nature um because people see it as something that is in their culture they see it very in, intertwined and interwoven into the very fabric of what makes them American. It's not just that people are like, oh yeah, Second Amendment this and Second Amendment that, which yes, um, we should be in part for the right to defend yourself um, when needed, when necessary. Does it suck that we have to do that? Yes, but that's just the country we live in, not so much the society in general, but just the country we live in that where in certain parts of the country you have to be able to defend yourself in certain situations that might happen to you that are known to happen in, in that area of the country or the place where you live. Um, and I think those things are important to consider as well. Um, when it, I think it's also important to consider when we talk about who it affects the most. 
So who who does this look on gun control affect the most? We know that historically the NRA proposed gun control to counteract um, the Black Panther Party sentiment for the right to bear arms. Um, so we know that intrinsically in the beginning that gun control was inherently an ideal to be discriminatory and racist. But that doesn't also mean it has to stay that way or it has to be that way um, at all. And But I think that knowing that is what makes it even more complex. Um, there is a solution. Do I know the answer to that solution? No. Do I think the left knows the answer to that solution? Not necessarily. Because it's so complex. Because I think the U.S. left doesn't take into account that Yes, in other European countries or other um, oceanic, Oce- oceanic countries such as New Zealand, Australia, and so on, um, and even some East Asian countries, um, they all have different views on gun control. They all have different views on gun control. Why? Because their cultures, one, are not so interwoven around the ideal of having a gun, but also because the state in those countries, in those areas, has taken measures to prevent them from making it easy for them to have a gun because of situations not in recent past history, but before that, in certain situations such as civil wars, such as such as revolutions, and so on. All of those are taken into account, even if it may not seem that way, to counteract anything that might happen that might give the the working class in those areas more ability and more power to do so. Um, and I think that understanding the material conditions of each place makes it easy to understand their concepts and why they're like that. But it doesn't make it easier to understand the unique position that the U.S. is in, which is not to say that the U.S. is unique in itself, but it is unique in certain positions that are, that are held. And it's unique in how the ruling class and the working class have developed in the United States, um, such as the need to assimilate. There is, it is unique in the sense that there is not many countries in the world where they are built solely around a national identity that is built up on ideals. Um, you can't say that about Canadians either because even indigenous populations in Canada have rights and they have fought for those rights and they continue to do so and they are seen as a visible force. The same thing about Quebecers. It's the same ideal when they held the referendum and barely lost. The, and barely and barely lost the right to self-determination, but they got the right to vote. Um, and so this is very different in a sense that the U.S. is made up of basically indigenous populations that live here, but have basically no say to some say. And it's this idea of different identities coming at a head and going ahead against each other to trying to fit into a mold that makes them so on so or quote-unquote American. Um, and though that, I guess that's my thoughts around it. Um. So my name is Sarah. Uh, I have lived in the Twin Cities for just shy of 25 years. Um, I am a member of MNA, Minnesota Nurses Association. I also do a lot of work in the community surrounding labor rights and anti-fascism. Um, as far as guns, I very much used to, I would say, 
as recently as six years ago, used to buy the kind of popular progressive idea of there's too many guns, we just need to get rid of the guns, and everything will be better. Uh, so I started to turn around on that um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, when Charlottesville happened, that really opened my eyes a lot to the real tangible threat of fascists in our country, and that they're willing to use violence, <clears throat> excuse me, they are willing to use violence regardless how we show up and regardless of the posture we take if we choose to confront them or stand up to them in any way. They're going to come at us. They don't care. So I started to come around more on the idea of, um, you know, it's good to be able to protect yourself in that, whether that means just forcibly standing up as a group uh, in a more organized defensive position or um, physically fighting back, or worst case scenario, what nobody wants to have to do, which is uh, carry a weapon to match their weapons. The majority of these people are armed when they come out on the streets. Um, so that was a big turning point for me. And then also talking more to my brother-in-law, uh, who's been a big guns right advocate for quite a while. And uh, that stems mostly from he is a minority living in Texas. And he has no illusions about what's out there and what people face. So he started giving me basic gun safety and lessons and what have you. And I mean, the bottom line for me really is it would be great if we had a world without guns, but that's not going to happen. Like the horse is out of the barn, so to speak. Um, that's, and especially with the Second Amendment, not going to happen. The guns are out there. So as long as cops, and white supremacists are armed, I want to be able to be armed. And it also ties a little bit back to, um, you know, theory like the idea that the working class should never, should never be disarmed. And it's not some fantasy often painted in the right wings about like, oh, we would be able to take on the government, but it's more about defense. We come from a defensive, not an offensive position. So that's where I stand on guns. And I think it would be really great if um, more progressives would kind of open their eyes to the reality that we're living in and just look at it from that viewpoint of why they might be necessary. Hi, um, my name is Liane Gehl. Uh, maybe you hear my accent. I'm from Germany originally, but have been in the United States since 1991. Um, I came here to pursue a PhD and uh, I worked in research uh, for about 25 years focusing on population biology, not on people but on fungi, it was super interesting. And since about 10 years I was kind of booted out of my career but I was also drawn to activism. So the past 10 years I've been trying to find my way within, um, you know, movements and where my personal position is. and. I was part here in the Twin Cities of a number of different groups, and um, it's they, I always outcrew everything. I was involved in Take Action, I was involved in Zeitgeist, I was a co-chair of the Green Party of Minnesota for a little while, and organized a national meeting. Um, I moved over to basic income, and then uh, that didn't fit any more either, so um, the last four or five years I've focused on care. I find that a very interesting uh, topic. Um, I was very influenced by Ina Pretoria's essay, um, 
about the care-centered economy, so that has been kind of my focus. Um, I'm waiting for the revolution, basically, and I think um, the revolution will come through a change of narrative and uh, will uh, be based on a new understanding of feminism and uh, resurrection of indigenousness. Um, I'm very... Um, I, I have this urgency within me because I really feel it physically, emotionally, and mentally that we need to have system change now. So um, that's what I'm all about. I'm, I see that there's kind of uh, small pockets of activism uh, arising around system change. So, and I hope that that's kind of where we're, you know, that we can do that together soon. Yeah, so, it, you know, like I, I see all the different issues, you know, gun culture, gun violence, uh, minimum wage, um, Medicare for all, um, like so many different, so many, many different issues, you know, the environment. And they're kind of all for me, like um, part of, a, like they're symptoms for me, you know, so it's part of a problem. So, and I kind of, I just cannot really find solutions if we just see any of the topics we are facing in isolation. I always, and I think it's because of my training as a, as a population biologist, maybe just because of natural inclination, I'm always kind of trying to step back and then look at from, you know, more from a, looking at um, those issues as puzzle pieces and how we can make a, you know, like a whole puzzle out of it. And I think, um, I just hesitate to talk about specific issues. I always want to kind of step back and I just kind of go, um, whenever I talk to uh, fellow activists, I always kind of come back to um, Bell Hooks, uh, who talks about the interlinking um, systems of oppression and domination, you know, the imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchy, and uh, see it always, uh, whatever is happening, you know, from, a, from, from that lens, you know, so, and I, I think, you know, like the guns, I mean, they're kind of really a part of um, a violent, a violent society, you know, I mean, this is just, what are guns for? I mean, guns were invented to commit violence, and uh, that is one of the major problems society is facing. Is this vile? It's just violence. It's violence. So um, I don't know. Uh, that is kind of something we need to um, stop. And I think you know, like coming from Europe, I think I also have specific sensibilities because I see that. I did not grow up with, you know, guns or a gun culture or I, I, I'm sure, you know, a lot of people romanticize guns here, you know, I mean, it's part of the culture. But for me, coming from outside of the culture where um, from Germany, where guns are highly regulated, I just kind of I, I just I have like no no connection to that. It's um, I just know deep in my heart that, um, you know, we need to just kind of uh, have a change in narrative. Um, about what life is about and our relationships is about and to each other and to the planet. And that's our show for today, folks. Talking job, the daily 
This has been another edition of Socialist News and Views with your host, Nick Schillingford. <laughs>